Welcome, guys, to the JPS Podcast, and we have Mr. Alberto Nunez on the show today. Welcome, Alberto. Thank you for having me. Really, really appreciate. And uh, it was a uh, it was a process. We kept running into things to get it to this point. <laughs> it was a so I'm glad to be here. Yeah, it was. It was. But we're here now, I think, and we uh, we'll make some make some good use out of this time for sure. For sure. So Berto competed uh, many, many years ago and has been doing so uh, on a regular basis for quite a while and has forged a name for himself and 3DMJ in the natural bodybuilding community, both as an athlete and coach, and is renowned for his paper-thin skin. And you will have seen this on Tilapia Tuesdays. So make sure you tune in, guys. Check out the tag. (laughs) Make sure you check the hashtag. And he also has his pro card uh, in just about every natural federation. So he's a very experienced and knowledgeable bodybuilder and coach and is very much a uh, reason that the natural bodybuilding community has uh, propelled the way it has today. So we're very privileged to have Birdo uh, in the community as well as on the show today. Thank you, Alberta. Oh, thank you, thank you. Like, you know what? Yeah, it's it's been a while now. Like I, I go back to it's 2017. My first season was in 2007, mm. and I go back to then. I was just like that wide-eyed rookie. Like, let's see what this bodybuilding thing is all about. And here we are, ten years later, kind of kind of married to it at this point. And and it's been really just a joy to see how far it it has come. That's that's been the best part I feel. Yeah, definitely. And I, I as I said, I think you've been very much uh, involved in the growth of natural bodybuilding and bringing awareness to it. So, kudos to you, Alberto, and you know, keep doing what you're doing. But to start mm-hmm. the interview today, I wanted to ask you something a little left of center. So, mm-hmm. you've spoken about your creative side and how you like to be creative and marinate this creation. Um, but you're also a stickler for your routine. So I wanted to ask you, Alberto, does bodybuilding fulfill that creative side to you? Yeah. Um, let's see. That's a good question. Um, I think maybe in a slightly different manner than, than most uh, other body bodybuilders would uh, there we go they came back we're back we're back okay there we go um, yeah I think most bodybuilders when they speak of it being a, a sport slash art um, it's it's their physique they talk about and I think uh, to me at this point it's more about being crafty to find ways to continue to progress. Uh, more than anything, it's it's you know definitely at this point 15 years of uh, just like training, weight strength training in, in general. Um, it, it's hard to squeak by with any sort of progress. And then I guess the catch 22, I almost feel like it's easier to backslide too. Like if you take a wrong turn, make a few wrong decisions with your training, it's a little bit easier to kind of lose a lot of those peak adaptations, I feel. So it's such a sensitive thing. And I think that is where being creative and sometimes thinking a bit outside of the box definitely comes in handy. So figuring things out, that's that to me is probably the part that brings me the most joy in all this, cracking the code, if you will. Yeah, yeah. And as I mentioned, and you've spoken about in the past, you're somebody who's very structured you uh, wake up 30, 50 minutes before all your Skype calls, you know, you do your walks and you have quite a rigid routine. How do you balance the dynamic and I guess the creative side of your bodybuilding with needing that structure and routine? You know, it, it, it's, it's strange because like here I am about four weeks away from starting on uh, my, my full contest prep diet and committing to that, and like the first thing that comes to mind is like, how am I going to fit everything? How am I going to make everything work? Yeah. Uh, it seems like right now in a well-fed state, sometimes it's hard enough to keep up with things. But um, I think, if anything, and I think most folks who have embarked in a contest prep will tell you that at some point in there, they just become more productive, you know, mm. because 
in order to have time to bodybuild, do all the things that you need to do so that you check the day's list off, you need to have your, your you need to manage time correctly. Um, so I think that's honestly, that's probably the one thing that bodybuilding did for me early on in, in my teens specifically is it, it showed me how to manage time. And I think that was especially important at the time because we were living by slightly different rules back then. What I mean by that is like the food timing, yeah. the, you know, how long your workout had to be, when the yeah. pre had to take place, when the post had to take place. So I was juggling all these things and it was quite annoying, but I was getting it done. And um, obviously we've, we've exiled a few of those behaviors, but nevertheless, like in order to, to get things done, to accomplish um, all the things you want to accomplish as a physique athlete, you, you, you got to get good at that type management mm. side of things. Uh, so it makes you better at other things. I feel at the end of the day, you know, mm. you have to, you have to be. Yeah, I definitely agree with that. And bodybuilding is something uh, that really helped give my life structure. And in terms of your bodybuilding off seasons, you do enjoy a beer. Absolutely. Yes, yes, yes. And in most typical bodybuilding contest preps, this is seen as taboo and something that we don't uh, condone because we want to make sure that we're maximizing uh, the nutrients within our diet and all the rest of it. And is this something that you continue to enjoy even during your contest prep in four weeks' time or is it something that you um, leave to the off-season specifically? You know, I think this is a... This is this is a question that I will get often. So, like, when do I cut it out? Is it like as soon as we start the prep? Is it once we're deep into the prep? Um, and I think the the answer in this one, once you you've kind of instructed uh, an athlete in how to account for their alcohol consumption, whether it be beer or you know a few drinks, um, you know other other sort of drinks outside of beer, you know. Once they know how to kind of make that fit, if you will, um, when it gets removed is really going to be up to the athlete. So for me, I really, I really, here we go. I really, we made it back. Okay. I really love beer. Like I love beer to the point where maybe I'll keep it there a bit longer than most, but there's a certain point where it's like, man, I only have so many calories that go into my recovery. It seems like I'm always a little bit behind on my recovery. Yeah. And there's a point where I'm like, you know what? I think I think some extra sweet potato would do me a little bit better this week <laughs> as opposed to that beer I really want. Um, and yeah, I think at a certain point last prep, I just I remember having a few beers in my fridge that I purchased because it was going to be my one or two beers that I have during the week. And then they just got all skunky and old on me because I just I couldn't yeah. pull the trigger on it anymore. It's like no, yeah. I need to make it to this next training session. I'm barely surviving at this point. So yeah, yeah. Um, so yeah. So very individual dependent. And when you're in the off season periods like you are now, you obviously track your calories or have some you know structure within your diet, knowing how much food you're consuming and a pre-contest diet before your contest prep. Mm -hmm. But is counting calories in the off-season something that all bodybuilders should do and must do? Um, or is this potentially uh, negatively impacting their longevity when the contest prep comes because they're mentally burnt out from tracking and so forth? Could you shed some light on that? You know, it, it's strange how things come full circle. You know, like we we start here and then we're like, man, this might be wrong. Let's do something that's completely different. And then we kind of come back to our, our roots. Um, and like when I look at my diet now, it's a little bit closer, I think, to what it was maybe a decade ago, mm. like relative to maybe when I started tracking the macros, right? Um, dots. Yeah, yeah, like it's it's it went back to its roots, and like there's yeah. no pop tarts in my cupboard, and a lot of the basic fundamental things that make for a bodybuilder diet, they're kind of part of my system, if you will, mm. and I think yeah, the, you know the tracking calories, tracking macronutrients, it's 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 a great way to learn to be objective with your diet. It's a must when you're dieting because mm. um, it's very hard when you're like five pounds away from stage weight to make objective calls, although otherwise it like. In your heart, every day should be a refeed at that point if you can auto-regulate and take. Um, but, but, you know, yeah, you go through those phases of, of learning to count, track, be a bit more objective with your food, build, um, 
an, an, a foundation in regards to your understanding of nutrition. And then I do think it's there. there is a time where probably the best thing you can do as an athlete, probably the best time to do this is somewhere in your body fat settling point, like mm. where your like hunger levels are a little bit closer to what they normally are. To, to yeah create some systems that probably make more sense in the long term and I, for example in, in my case and I think a lot of people might feel the same if I have say five protein feedings a day it'll completely um, it, it'll give me an appetite that is much more in line with the body fat that I want to keep during the off season yeah uh, and it kind of goes back to what I was doing at the start and for a minute that I think I was having like two three meals with protein a day just yeah. a few years ago because it was kind of like hey you know let's let's push back yeah, that yeah. other movement uh, yeah. but like now this year it's probably been the least tracking this whole season the least tracking I've ever done mm-hmm. but there's a few um, a few things that are set in stone that like, you'll see every day you know enough fruits enough vegetables yeah frequent You're there, but yeah. Frequent, uh, yeah. So, um, so yeah, fruits, vegetables in the routinely, frequent protein feedings, and I like, guess what? It keeps you kind of looking like a bodybuilder year round. Um, yeah. So yeah, yeah. And everyone's system is going to look a bit different, but I, I do suggest that people embark and head in that direction at some point. Yeah, because. Yeah, definitely bodybuilders meticulously tracking, weighing, and measuring their food for 12 months of the year can uh, wreak havoc when it really counts. Uh, And in regards to off-season, so you spoke about how having some systems such as your protein, uh, fruits, vegetables, and all the rest of it, what are the other factors that you're looking to change in comparison to a contest prep um, outside of obviously increasing calories in the diet? In my diet? Um, as I get deeper into the off season? Yeah. Okay. Um, let's see. You know, I would say that for the most part, it remains pretty, pretty static. The only thing that might change is my caloric intake as I get heavier and bigger over time. It's probably going to you know, by default of my body weight, it's probably going to climb up a, a slight bit. Um, but I, I would say that honestly, the, the only thing that changes is that I do have these thresholds in regards to like body weight. And yep. once I get to a certain point, it's time to cut back down. So that's probably the biggest contrast that you'll see in my off-season diet is like when I've gotten, according to my standards, like too fat or we're done with this gaining phase, we'll, we'll start a, a, a cutting block. And um how often? I like to go six to eight months typically without seeing a caloric deficit mm-hmm. typically. That yep. seems to be about the sweet spot. Yeah, Awesome. And is there any adjustment or sh- shifts in your macronutrient intake as you're gaining weight? Do you gradually lower protein the more uh, body fat you have? Um, mm-hmm. Do fats come down to increase carbs to minimize you know, potential fat gain? Um, what are some things that you do within your diet? Yeah, yeah. So, you know, obviously right now in the off season, like I'm pretty, guess the best word for it would be metabolically pliable. And evidence of this exists in that, you know, I can wake up at eight and for some strange reason, if I don't eat until two, I'm, I'm okay. You know, yeah. I can even train and I'll be okay. Right. Uh, whereas like when I'm dieting, that, that would be a no go. Like I can, <laughs> I can tell you, even with a few meals in me, more or less where my carbs are at, at 3 PM just by yeah. feel. Right. Yeah. So we're not as pliable. There is definitely going to be a fat to carb ratio that probably makes more sense when you're dieting. Whereas right now it's more about you know enough calories, get enough protein, um, and you know the carbs and the fats kind of take care of themselves. Like it kind of get, it's kind of a murky, murky little pond right now. But yeah, as we get leaner, that is one thing that you you do have to recall is that, uh, especially for a drug free athlete, how you train, how you perform is going to play a major role in, in what that final product looks like. Um, yeah. And you you will find yourself having um, to favor your carbohydrate intake and try to salvage as much of those, of your calories and have them go towards your carb intake, of course, once your protein requirements are met, which are also important. So that's probably the biggest thing is it like in terms of fat to carb ratios in the off season, does it matter? 
Yes, but maybe not as much as when we are dieting, where, you know, at that point, um, you know, sometimes removing 20 grams of fat from someone and giving it over to the carbohydrates is just that one thing they need to keep their training mm. looking somewhat close to what it was in the in the off season. Yeah, yeah. And in the off season, Alberto, you know, appetite's very inter individual uh, related and it's regulated very differently from person to person. And you've spoken before about how you're ravenous after training. How mm. do you make sure that with people who aren't ravenous after training and when they're gaining weight just simply can't eat anymore, those hard gainers per se, who aren't meticulously tracking calories, what is the recommendation there to ensure that they are progressing in the off-season? Yeah, you know, that's that's uh, like when people think of, you know, flexible dieting, the IIFY, the first place the first place that they that they go to is you know the pop tarts the the pancakes the candy that you can possibly be eating while on this diet and still progressing mm. uh whereas i i really i really feel that the the biggest the, the most the best part about flexible dieting is the most important part to me is it, it lets you get the most out of yourselves by having a diet fit you and not the other way around mm. so for example um, for someone in that situation where like training would blunt their appetite, we would find that one uh, part of the day where they have an easier time eating or find yeah. foods that they don't uh, find particularly satiating. So um, like for example, um, uh, there's a lot of diets out there with sweet potato or potatoes and those for a lot of people tend to be just marvelously satiating, which is good when you're dieting. For some people not so much when they're trying to maintain or gain weight. Um, and a lot of those rigid templates would have that person. It's like, no, this is, you don't yeah. understand meal two, three, and four. We need to have this potato, um, with a, a more pliable format. You can maybe front load your calories to maybe early in the day. Maybe they're ravenous there and maybe mm. get rid of a lot of those foods that make it hard to eat. Um, so that's, that to me is like my favorite yeah. part about flexible diet. It's so dynamic and it's going to fit the individual. Yeah. Perfect. And like you mentioned there, so that's obviously for somebody who's trying to, you know, mitigate their hunger. In a contest prep, when you have somebody who's trying to stay full uh, as much as they can, what do you do opposite to somebody who's trying to gain weight and, you know, overcome that satiation? Yeah, well, so you don't have a beer because that's just going to give you the munchies. Uh, <laughs> I've, I've learned that at some point. Um, but... Um, yeah, yeah, I think this is where, uh, to a, a, a large extent, you will see a lot of experience flexible dieters play with, with volumetrics, um, you know, where they will have foods that, you know, you get a lot of, like, I guess, content for food. the amount of calories, yeah. yeah. Um, I will say that at a certain point, actually, I had this discussion today with, with a young lady um, <clears throat> in that... There's just a certain point I find, and this is like my own way of coping, but I shared it with her just in case, uh, that like you're just gonna be hungry, and like to try to fix it or or try to try to find ways to like hack the system, it's just not going to happen. And what I have found over the years is just like you know when it's time to be hungry, just just be hungry. That's just what yeah. you are. It's like a heavy squat at the bottom. Guess what it's gonna feel like? It's hungry. gonna feel heavy. That's just, that's just what it yeah. is. So yeah. at a certain point, you're just hungry. Just deal with it. That's part of uh, – I think that's part of – in a sickening way, that's one of the reasons I come back is just to enter that trance of like I am – I'm water, right? I am what I am. <laughs> that's awesome. And something that um, you guys use to reverse the adaptations of dieting, which is hunger, is the diet break. And, you know, Lyle mm. came up with this quite a while back, but you guys have highly popularized this method within a contest prep. Um, and what do your protocols look like for a diet break in terms of the time frame, how much do you increase calories, um, and so forth? Um, okay, so luckily for us, I think often diet breaks take shape of, of a peak week. So towards the end, a peak week will, um, will kind of take the place of a diet break, but for a lot of the listeners out there, they're like, eh, I don't know about this taking a week, you know, to, to mm. just, you know, pull out for a minute and, and like, you know, you always feel like you're a little behind when you're prepping. 
Um, one of my biggest selling points is anyone who's gone through a decently structured peak week, they will tell you that after that peak week, they just started to hit lows again. Things were working again. They felt better. They felt refreshed. And uh, for the most part, usually when you don't, when you do go through a peak week, um, you don't have a full week where you know you, you're eating a maintenance. It's a few spotty days across the week, yeah. but you get enough of the effect. Um, so what we like to do is we like to start having those prior to those peak weeks, and it depends on how adaptive the person is. So maybe some people every fifth week they might need you know a five six day recharge. Um, some other people might be able to go eight to ten weeks. But I'd say for the vast majority, having a diet break take place anywhere between six to ten weeks is going to be the sweet spot. And when you do create your your diet plan, you should make time for those. So yeah. when you do actually, you know, press the contest prep button, like that's all been allotted for, and we've 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 uh, we've that's part of the plan as opposed to something that's like, hey, surprise, yeah. right? Yeah. That kind of out athletes. But um, a few things that, that you will get from it, I think, often. Um, Especially once you have a few weeks of dieting, a body just kind of has that look where we're not eating enough, we're training really hard, and we're just like this this mess of of, of water retention, this this ball of cortisol. Um, mm-hmm. So sometimes that helps clear that out. An athlete gets an idea of what they're actually looking like, and they're like, "Wow, this is motivating. Let's mm-hmm. keep going." Along with the water retention, you'll often get some 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 water loss, which is good because often we're, we're chasing certain numbers in the scale and they're just not happening and it's just not happening and sometimes the diet break has a way of yeah. of unsticking weight loss. Uh, and then of course afterwards you get that more responsive body and going back to training I think the big one is that uh, we're always a little behind in regards to recovery when it comes to, a, to an extended fat loss phase so sometimes that diet break has a way of kind of bringing you up to speed um, so they're all nice and caught up for once. Yeah, that's hardly ever really the case in a prep. Yeah, yeah, really good information. And a few questions on that. So the first one that comes to mind is when you said that it the the diet break is a peak week. Are you typically front loading carbohydrates, back loading, and in regards to improving recovery, do you also time the diet break with a deload, or do you use that time of increased uh, calories and carbohydrates? Um. To then train harder and you know really push the tempo to potentially retain more muscle than what otherwise would have been lost. Yeah, that's a great question. Um, so uh, during yeah during most peak weeks we 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 usually go with the front load, especially with with first time athletes. Yeah. Uh, unless through the previous diet breaks we got some hints as to what might work. Mm-hmm. Um, but usually I like to leave the backloads for athletes that are super duper predictable. You know, you yeah. know where they're going to be after 600 grams of carbs, 800 grams of carbs. Um, but the the front loads, yeah, we have them early in the week. Yes, that's the name front load. And uh, often what will happen is, uh, especially when you take someone that's pretty emaciated, uh, the extra food for a few days kind of picks up need. A lot of that water retention is, you know, is yeah. – is, uh, is, finally dissipating a bit and uh, you end up having to load the person even more and more so it ends up being like five six days of actual loading mm. uh, usually less predictable someone is the further away I have the carbohydrates so if, if yeah. it's someone who I just cannot figure out we'll probably start loading up Saturday Sunday Monday cruise a little bit see where we're at and then maybe hit them with a little bit more towards the end of the week uh, it's not a full diet break but it definitely it's a little bit more than it's they were most than, like yeah um but now in regards to the diet break outside of the peak week, the actual diet break, you know, that's kind of a personal preference thing. Mm-hmm. And it kind of is, is, is similar to what happens at the micro level with, uh, with your training week. Some people like refeeds on off days. Other people would rather yeah, yeah. have that fall on that really heavy day mm-hmm. and they, they feel like they get the most out of it. So um, I would kind of go based off that. Like if, if you're one of those people that, you know, that food that you get that day gets put into some awesome use – during that training day, um, then you know what? We should probably have a diet break during the heaviest training of that cycle, the most challenging week. Yeah. And then if you're more like myself, I I do much better when I just eat and don't move. <laughs> and I feel like it, instead of it just helping one workout, it tends to help a collection yeah. of training sessions. Uh, so for me, I would be more of a candidate for doing the exact opposite. I would deload and then have a week where I'm eating enough. Um, yeah. so it, it really depends on the person for sure. Yeah, 
that's um yeah great insight as to how you guys deal with diet breaks and something else i wanted to talk to you about was birdo's angels birdo's angels is that the bikini crew the bikini (laughs) crew the bikini crew so you started working with some bikini girls and these divisions typically carry with them a more inexperienced uh, lifter and a more inexperienced dieter in the sense that you know they typically just go to the gym train hard diet hard but they're not necessarily uh, at not all the time but more times than not they start out with a little less education um, than some of the elite bodybuilders that you work with so how do you tackle working with someone online um, who is starting a little bit further behind where you need them to be for their contest prep how do you pick them up to speed in terms of teaching them because we know that um, flexible dieting and training properly is such a learning process um, in a restricted time frame how do you do that yeah yeah you know it, it's tough because to have and luckily for these these divisions that typically you know cater to to people who are a, a little bit newer you don't have to get quite as lean but I still find it very challenging to have to, to be able to educate a competitor while getting them to where they want to be like simultaneously um that's that's rough because like for me one thing that i advise generally like if we have if i have time to have an intervention is like the first time you get in shape should not be for the stage your first time you get in shape should be something that you kind of you've done a few times on your own and then you decide to push a bit past that um, so in this case, often that's that's we don't get that luxury. Um, so I just I, I do my best to make sure that after we've collaborated, worked on this contest prep, that they can go out and fend for themselves. Yeah. Because even after our prep, they're going to be relatively green and new. Often that is the case, and I want them to know the basics. So if you know maybe a few months later they're looking for something to reinvigorate their fitness life again, and yeah. they they. they there's one of those like squat challenges for like 30 days. Like they know yeah, that. And no, they no, say no. <laughs> yeah, you know they they they'll know that. Hey, you know when I go up the stairs with my own body weight, I I I, I put more tension on my legs and on yeah. these squat variations you want me to do. <laughs> um, so um so yeah, that's 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 usually how it goes, and and I do my best to make sure that. By the time it's all said and done, they they know how to lift because I think mm-hmm. that is the one thing that anyone who's competed before and 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 they've got themselves into this awesome shape and they thought they were gonna almost for a minute there look like this the rest of their lives. Um, it's it's where you go to afterwards. Like you take um, you you learn to appreciate the other cool things that your your body is able to do for you should you you be healthy enough and. And that's hopefully where I drop them off at the end of the prep where they're like yeah. stronger than they ever were before and it feels good and looking a certain way isn't necessarily always like the yeah the number yeah. one goal. Yeah, awesome. And in regards to all the principles, you know, that you guys apply to your bodybuilders and figure athletes, how does the degree to which you apply them change when you're dealing with a category that isn't uh, required to be as lean, dry, hard as those other categories. Yeah, you know that's 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 I love this one because I still get a lot of general population people from time to time. I, I really don't know how that works, but every once in a while we'll get someone who signs up for a Skype consultation, and uh, in there they says it says they don't lift weights and they have no interest in lifting weights. Um, what? And oh yeah, and firstly I'm like. I'm like, well, you know, I guess, um, how did, well, like, how did you, how did you end up here is the question, right? But I, 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 I'm aware that basically we're all kind of looking for very similar adaptations to take place. It's just, there's a cutoff point that's different for, for every person. Um, so it just happens that with these divisions, it's like this is what I do with my general population people. It's like, hey, we'll lose 30 pounds. Yeah. We'll walk 10,000 steps, you know. Um, and then for them, it's like they're just a little bit later down the road. And then you got the wacky bodybuilders that just they, they want to keep yeah. going down that road for yeah. a little bit longer. Um, 
so that's that's honestly that's that's the main difference. It's just at a certain point, it's like, hey, we're okay. I have um, this year. I think I have eight bikini athletes on my roster, and all but two are like finished cooking, and we look great. We look good, and yeah. I can get them leaner. But it's to the point now where it's like, you got the look. Now we just yeah. we're we're ready, so we just stay ready. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Awesome, awesome. And you've mentioned previously that you must go through a contest prep uh, and mess it up. And that's yeah. how we learn and that's how we get better as bodybuilders. And something I wanted to ask you uh, was your first comp in 2007, how did you mess that up comparatively to what you're going to do this year? What are the stark contrasts between Alberto's contest prep 2017 versus 2007? Yeah, I think we'll start with the fact that my starting weight was 210 pounds. Um, <laughs> what are you yeah. now, 180? 180. So where I ended up at the end of that contest season, that's that's where I'm at right now. Yeah. So yeah. I was I was wow. running a marathon that was twice as long as it needed wow. to be. Um, yeah. When I look back, it's like, man, you, you lost a good amount of weight for the time you had, but you just it was just a lot of road you had to cover. Um, so that's the first one. And then lastly, I don't think I was quite as... I was definitely in a, in a place where I understood what a calorie was and how it worked and how energy balance, um, how, how that agreement works out. But I was still also in a place where like I'm a bodybuilder and like what I am after requires something way different. Yeah. Um, so there was, there was a lot of things that I did wrong in regards to like the amount of different foods I had in my diet. There was like maybe a rotation of 10 that were allowed in yeah. there. And I was not weighing things nearly as meticulous. I was eyeballing them, which yeah, right. okay. that, that does mm. not work. I used to have a, you know, <laughs> you know how we all have like a part of chicken in the fridge. Yeah. yeah. Um, I had a part of chicken that I would take with me and throughout the day I would just take some and some days I'd take more, some days I'd take less. Remember at work there were stray yeah. dogs in the back and here I was sharing my food with these stray dogs. So that kind of goes to show you as to where I was in that diet. I was, I wasn't really feeling it, yeah, because I didn't yeah. get that lean, and also very precise. Yeah, yeah. But yeah, it 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 it, it was lacking in in many many ways. Yeah, for sure. And something that bodybuilders deal with, Alberto, during a contest prep is preoccupation with food. We become obsessed with food whether it's being in the kitchen cooking it whether we're out we constantly think about food it's just our biological drive telling us to eat now mm -hmm. how do you deal with this preoccupation with food what are some strategies you implement to try and keep your mind away from food all the time because that's obviously key to you know longevity in the diet yeah um we'll, we'll go back to that first one we're just going to be hungry and that's just what yeah. it is like yeah. there's like you just you need to be at peace with that. It's like that PR squat. Guess what? It's gonna feel like when you unrack it and you take it out, and you walk it out. Like your body, everything in your body is gonna tell you don't bend your knees. <laughs> um, you know that's kind of how diet feels at a certain point. It just feels grindy and grindy, and everything outside of the rational part of your brain is telling you to eat. You know. Yeah. Um, so aside from the fact that that's just how it's going to be, nothing you can do about it, I'd say that there there is a certain point where you can get too food-focused that it's no longer really doing you a service. And for example, one rule that I have for myself is if I am in the kitchen and I'm looking for something to eat, if I am taking more than X amount of time deciding what that's going to be, I will just cut it there and give myself like the plainest thing here you're having yeah. greek yogurt and oats they're not even being cooked. Yeah. just toss them in there yeah that's your dinner um so yeah at a certain point you know thinking more about food is just going to make it thinking here we go there we go there we go okay i think i'm in yeah thinking more about food is just going to make it make it worse mm -hmm. and you need to go for a few contest preps for you to go back and, and be like, man, that was just, that was really silly. I, mm. I love training. I like to eat, but not as much as like training. Yeah. Um, but you need to go through it a few times and, and kind of experience like what is like the fluff that needs to be trimmed. Yeah. Yeah, for sure. And I wanted to talk a little bit about training and how 
power building, which is all the rage right now. You see a lot of bodybuilders transitioning into powerlifting and then powerlifters to bodybuilders. You did this uh, a few years back and trained, you competed in a bodybuilding meet, a bodybuilding show and then a powerlifting meet in subsequent weekends, I believe. Yeah, yeah. Um, they were four days apart. And four days. boy, did it feel. They wow. felt like they were four days apart. Um, I, I don't think I will ever venture into like doing that again. It was more of a, um, it was it was just a set of challenges I had that year. Like there was the, there's a IFBB pro card that is actually within reach for like naturals year via the the team yeah. universe. So my goal that year was to you know what I'm going to prep do a body do a powerlifting. Um, there we go. We're, we're, okay. Um, yeah, I'm going to prep. I'm going to do a bodybuilding show and I'm going to throw in a powerlifting meet like right there smack in the middle of it. Um, and there's just a certain point where, you know, an athlete needs to like pick one or the other, at least within the same calendar year. Right. Mm. Um, so, uh, I, I guess I learned my lesson in that regard. There's still certain components of uh, being a pure strength athlete that I keep as part of my training because, I mean, it's it's one of those things that, like, hey, if you're in the gym, like, you, you might as well get strong while you're there, right? Yeah, like, yeah. Um, like, there's nothing wrong with being strong, nothing wrong at all. Uh, it can get to the point for either, like, athlete where it gets a bit distracting, I feel. Like, sometimes there's powerlifters that – they're really stuck on looking a certain way and they don't go up that weight class where they would be much more effective at this yeah, point. Right. They've outgrown that class. And then same thing with uh, a lot of bodybuilders, like getting strong can be addicting, but like you need to do something with that strength. You need to generate some volume with your newfound right. strength. And um, I think my first power building season, that's probably the one thing I did wrong is like my one rep maxes went up, but I never really used them for anything that was like yeah. very bodybuilder-ish, right? Yeah. Um, so yeah, to get caught up <clears throat> yeah so obviously we know that to excel in any discipline you know you need to specialize and you know do things that are specific to making the adaptations that you need to make for that discipline so obviously when we have power building and you know when you did powerlifting you obviously missed out on getting the volume for bodybuilding and so forth when does an athlete know it's time to start specializing and paying attention to one area or the other. Who this is this is this is a hard one because at the same time I really want people to enjoy what they do. Mm. Um, but like I've I've gotten to the point now where maybe like I have a shot at perhaps one one year winning a lightweight title at Worlds, and in order for me to do that I need to put like everything in that basket. So it got to the point. It's very similar to maybe uh, multi-sport athletes when they're in when they're in school, where it's like, hey, you know what? If you want to play uh, this sport at the university level, you can't be playing these four sports anymore. Mm. Like you need to pick one or the other. Um, so for me, it was just it was a very bottom line orientated decision, where it's it was I want to be really good at the sport that I excel at, the powerlifting thing. I am above average, but not I wouldn't say I'm competitive. So for me personally, that is what took me into, I guess, being more of a full-time bodybuilder this go-around. Um, and for for anyone else, let's just say that they're 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 not in that position yet, where you know they could they they can do X things in that sport. I would say it becomes quite clear, kind of like the whole beer situation, where you kind of feel that like this. This other sport is taken away from the other one. When yeah. you get to that point, that is most likely when maybe it is time to at least have blocks that focus more so on the other one mm. or or maybe exclusively focus on, on one sport. Because, I mean, I remember there's a certain point in that season where I understood why uh, Lane Norton, why Ryan Doris, like they both used to have like these massive arms and then they got into powerlifting and they didn't have these massive arms anymore. And after yeah. you get done with all your primary work, like, remember this, like, the last, the, the last thing you want to do after all that work is go do your secondaries. Like, you yeah. have nothing left. Yeah. Um, so, yeah, yeah, it becomes quite clear, I think, for most athletes that are somewhat in tune, when it starts, one interferes with the other a bit. For sure, for sure. 
And you recently did an interview with Mike Matthews on weak point training, which was uh, really, really beneficial and discussed a lot of uh, good topics surrounding picking up lagging body parts. But for individuals who respond differently uh, to training and have these imbalances, how do you determine if an athlete's weakness or a uh, underdeveloped muscle is indeed weak versus undertrained? Mm-hmm. Yeah, that is that is a great point you bring up. Um, you know, you will hear someone complain about their their their, their side delts, right? Their mm-hmm. side delts, and so then you look delts. at the. And it's because no one does and, them right. Like, <laughs> because no one does them right. Like you Correct. walk into, those are like calves and like delt work are the two things that when you see people doing, it's like, you're not even like, you're not even there, dude. You're just, <laughs> you're just like flapping yeah, your wings, like a right? Hoping for the best. <laughs> so yeah. Yeah. So that's the first thing you examine. It's like, let me see what it looks like. Yeah. And you know, someone has bad legs and it's like, well, it's because you're self spotting yourself on every rep on that leg press, you know, that, that thing they do with their knees. Right. Um, so yeah, I think that's the first place you start before you have to change anything structurally to the program. And then if everything's going well, they, they are like just on top of their form, then you should perhaps, um, look into running some specialization cycles, which I do think they are appropriate right around the intermediate phase and in, in, yep. in onwards, yeah. Yeah, awesome. And in terms of, you know, technique and form, you know, Brett Contreras and Brad uh, Schoenfeld are doing some fantastic work now uh, on the mind-muscle connection. Mm-hmm. How much emphasis do you place on feeling the movement and your ability to then progress at that exercise um, for a particular exercise. You know, I was actually thinking about this the other day. It was kind of an, uh, uh, an ironic thought that I, I, and I realized like, man, you used to do this when you were a younger bodybuilder. Yeah. But like you will see these guys in the off season, just kind of hoist this crazy big weight on all their secondaries. And then it comes time to prep and they're fine. They're like, because all the muscles, like you can see them, you can see them in action. They're finally <laughs> arms like, the way they should and they're actually yeah. like thinking and squeezing um and, and that's my general rule is that i think for isolation movements like using internal cues probably work a little bit better so like when you're doing a fly you know thinking about bringing that across your chest there it goes yep so okay um but, uh, but yeah, I think for isolation movements, the mind-muscle connection is super important. And internal cues are, I think, something that works well for most. How much weight you can put on in a tricep extension, a curl, a chest fly, it's just so limited yeah. that you need sort of subjective um, system to progress with. The weights are going to go up in time. But in the meantime, before you jump to that next dumbbell on your lateral raises, you know, I think – having a good mind-muscle connection is, is important. I think this it's, it's something that, remember I intuitively did when I had a weight set at home and all I had was like the stuff I had here and if yeah. I wanted to buy more weight, I would have to go out and buy more weight. That's funny, I was a teenager. Yeah, yeah. So I would like get the most out of that weight and then finally it's like, all right, dude, you're past the 20-pound curls. Yeah. You need to go get some weights. You've earned um, it. Yeah, you've earned it, yeah. And it's I think when it comes to isolation movements, that that is, I think, the best way – to I guess microload and mm. progress with. Yeah, excellent point. And when it comes to compounds, and you know, when I say compounds, let's uh, take out the high risk, high neural demand compounds such as you know your barbell bench press, a front squat, and a conventional deadlift. Because trying to um, mani- deliberately manipulate load distribution for something like that's mm. always a bad idea. But this is something I've spoken about with Ian McCarthy. On an exercise that isn't an isolation movement, such as a dumbbell press or whatever it may be, do you find that you get greater you know, hypertrophy and a better result and a better contraction and squeeze subjectively um, as you've become more advanced by being able to deliberately manipulate the weight to that target area more so than what you could when you were inexperienced? Mm-hmm. You know, I think for an, an, an a bodybuilder that's... M- just getting things going, that would be a great way to teach a movement. Mm. Uh, but then it gets to the point where a lot of these movements are so just ingrained 
Um, and you're so strong that it just requires almost like full body irrigation to, to, to have it move. Um, I, I look at my buddy, Brian Miner, who's a, a, a natural bodybuilder in my hometown, great powerlifter. Here we go. Oh, okay. I think, I think. Um, and I had it, I, I actually, I asked him, I'm like, so when you bench press, like when you bench press, Brian, what, what do you feel? And uh, like, do, are you focusing on your pecs? Because he uses so much chest when he bench presses. He's, he's yeah, a right. very like dominant chest presser, more than triceps, more than any other things that might be adding to it. Not much of an arch. Um, and no, he's just basically it's it's the same things he took as as a bodybuilder. Now the load is just heavier, and everything has to be tight head to toe. And because everything is tight, it's really hard to, to like yeah, to, to say that like, my chest is is feeling it. But you can look at the movement and you're like, you know what? That is yeah. a lot of pec. Um, yeah. So I think early on it's a great way to wire the movement, to, to memorize the movement, to make it a habit. But then over time, just keep moving the same weight, the same way. Don't change your form, but the mm -hmm. weight needs to keep changing. So. Yeah. yeah. Yeah, that's a brilliant point. And obviously how important for you as you've progressed in your bodybuilding career is – lifting more weight are you focused more because you do have that element of strength in your program specifically um are you focused on intensity just as much as you are increasing volume over time or mm -hmm. how are you going about progressing your training like how are you going to get bigger uh, for 2018 2020 2025 alberta yeah yeah um you know, i think the majority of like my PRs take place at this point. They're not necessarily singles anymore. I'm not too interested in, in that. Maybe maybe one lift, but other than that, not really. Um, but then also, I don't really enjoy the the super high rep stuff either. So it's it's usually things in the four to eight rep range. Um, and we keep cutting out Alberta. <laughs> Here we go. Are you okay. All good? Are you okay. No, I stopped it. I think. I think. I, yeah. Yeah. In the four to eight rep range, and it's um, it's usually like maybe this is the this is the most weight I've done with a five by five. This is um, you know this is the most sets that I've done in a cycle where my loads are above three hundred pounds on this movement. Um, so little things like that, you really yeah. have to start to be objective and lay everything out because otherwise there's just a certain point where progress is so slow that if you don't have all this data, you're going to miss out on things you are doing right possibly, or of course, even things that you might be doing not so right. Um, mm. So yeah, PRs, they still happen. They're just a little different and they tend to be not as flamboyant as like yesteryear, yeah. you know? Yeah. Yeah. That's interesting. So it's not a given set or movement that you're seeing a PR on. It's the totality of your training program and what you're doing yeah. in the course of weeks and months. That's really interesting. Exactly. Exactly. I, yeah. I should have said it that way. <laughs> so what are some of the other ways that you like to overload and progress your training outside of you know, watching those bigger picture metrics? What do you like mm -hmm. to do with, within those you know, smaller muscle groups, for example, uh, the calves, the sidels, and all the rest of it? Yeah, um, I, I've gotten a rush out of just being insanely strong at these isolation movements, relatively speaking, with while using good form. And I remember the day, and I don't remember the day, but there the point in time where I'm like, you know what, we're going to start doing calves this way, we're going to start doing lateral raises this way, we're going to curl this way, and obviously all the loads came down. And then we started to get stronger with them, and now it's to the point where like I can do lateral raises with 40 pounds and it's in the mid scapular plane. It doesn't go below my belly button and it just stays there. And like yeah. to people who understand the form and what yeah, I'm doing, yeah. they're like, Oh man, wow. you've gotten like really <laughs> strong. Yeah. Um, so you still get strong. It's just, I think the the biggest thrill I get out of those movements is sounds so boring, but just being so patient with them yeah. and not losing my cool and rushing um, rushing progress. And this is something that Ian McCarthy's mentioned a few times is that you can up the load, but uh, yeah, weight is the closest proxy we have to kind of gauging how much tension we're putting on that muscle. But sometimes, especially in isolation movements, you can up the weight, but there's less actual tension, tension. running through the muscle. 
for sure. So being patient is probably the thing I get. The, it's, that's a huge PR. I'm more patient than ever now. Yeah. Um, <laughs> that's something you can only learn through experience, I think, Alberto. That is the only way. Yeah. I don't, I don't even give young lifters grief, the ones that aren't patient. Like, hey, there's no cure for that. There's no you'll, cure for that. You'll learn. Patience. Yeah. <laughs> so my final questions to Alberto are, what's planned for you this year outside of uh, competing in bodybuilding? You want to travel more. You've mentioned. Ooh, one more time. It did cut up. So outside of your bodybuilding uh, aspirations for 2017, what else is mm. planned for you? You mentioned in one of the 3DMJ podcasts that you want to explore the world and travel more. What's planned for Alberto this year? Um, yeah, I would, I would love to do that. Um, and I think of re- recently I've kind of narrowed it down some. I think what I need to go do is honestly, I haven't visit, I haven't been to much of Latin America, and I think that's I, I kind of sort of still speak the language. So while it's still there, I just go go yeah. go check out what's what's down there. Um, so at some point uh, this year, I would love to. I think Machu Picchu is like on the um, on the list. There's a yeah. few epic places that that I, I'm a I'm big on pre-Columbian history. Like it's it's yeah. my thing. Um, and cigars. So I'd like, and cigars, which they surely have quite a few of those all over the, all over Latin America. So that is that is what I want to do. But I think before that, we need to take care of the season. And I think it's it's finally gotten to the point where it's like, man, you need to do something. Like you you can't be having these second, third, and fourth places anymore. Like you need to do something. Yeah. It's about yeah. time. So, um, but we'll get a nice vacation out of it at the end. So that's probably. Biggest thing is to win and then chill. That's yeah, yeah. Very Netflix cool. and chill, win and chill, win it, win and chill. <laughs> Alberto, win and chill. <laughs> thank you very much for your time today on the podcast. It's been an absolute pleasure. Wish you the best of luck uh, for your contest prep, even though luck isn't needed for somebody as diligent as yourself. And we'll see you in Australia at 3DMJ Down Under in June. Awesome. Looking forward to that. Thank you very much for having me. Thank you. Thanks very much, Berto. Thank you.